in the off season, I think I'm gonna drive my Ferrari around Malibu. Um, go to the beach, um, maybe buy a mansion or two. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. Yo, welcome to episode 118 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking bullshit. Hey there, semi pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi Pro Cycling, home of the Semi Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash climber. Yes, we are starting with a review today by the Dobbs family from the US Super Podcast, entertaining, informative and motivating. I'm a cat one in the United States with a few amateur state titles in both the time trial and road race disciplines. Damien keeps it real for all of us, regardless of experience level. Keep it up D, you're hilarious and make the time pass pleasantly. This is too good to be free. Dobbs, repping it for the cat ones in the US. Thank you very much for dropping that review. I really do appreciate it. And if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week and probe number one prior low or high intensity exercise alters pacing strategy, energy system contribution, and performance during a four-kilometer cycling time trial. The names of these studies just get better and better. The researchers analyzed the influence of prior exercise, which was designed to reduce predominantly muscle glycogen in either slow-twitch or fast-twitch fibers, and they wanted to see how that would affect pacing and performance during a four-kilometer cycling time trial. So after preliminary and familiarization trials in a randomized repeated measures crossover design, 10 amateur cyclists performed in the evening, approximately 12 hours before the four-kilometer time trial. There was three groups, two that did exercises and a control group. The first group did an exercise that was designed to reduce glycogen for type 1 muscle fibers, which is slow twitch muscle fibers. Then following that, around 12 hours later, they did the 4-kilometer time trial. The exercise that this group did was cycling at an intensity of 30% of their peak power output for three hours. The second group, which did an exercise designed to reduce glycogen for type 2 muscle fibers, which is fast twitch muscle fibers, did 10 sets of one minute at a power output of 120 of their peak power output interspersed with five-minute rest periods. Following these exercises, at around 10 p.m. the night before the time trial, the participants were instructed to consume a low-carbohydrate dinner, which had 13% carbohydrates in it and was provided by the investigators, and they were instructed not to consume any other additional food. 
The third group, the control group, did no prior exercise, and for the control group participants, they were asked to consume a normal carbohydrate dinner, had around 67% carbohydrates in it, but no exercise was carried out in the prior evening. And what were the results? The performance time was increased and the power output was reduced. In the two groups that did exercise before the time trial, when comparing to the no prior exercise group... There was no difference statistically between the two exercise groups themselves, but definitely there was a difference between the no prior exercise group. Also, the power output was lower in the slow twitch group than in the no exercise group at the beginning and the middle of the trial. So for me, I would definitely say that this study demonstrated that the distribution of energy expenditure during a middle distance cycling time trial is dependent of the intensity and duration of the exercise carried out in the evening before. And three hours sounds absolutely cray-cray to me, but it happens on tours. Even the intensity from doing one-minute efforts would happen at certain track carnivals or other circumstances. So it is an interesting study, but it comes up with no real answers as to what not to do the night before, except... If you don't prepare correctly and you go and ride hard 12 hours before an event and you don't eat sufficient carbs, your time trial will suffer. I guess this is where something like the muscle sound, this is checking glycogen via an ultrasound, may help determine glycogen stores, which can help replenish carbs as the best preparation for an event. So probe number two is a couple of articles that are on Jared Veruman's blog and if you don't know Jared, he is a co-founder of Cervelo that was sold off in 2012. He's doing a whole bunch of other things now, including making mountain bikes under the Open Cycle brand name. But he talks a few years ago on his blog about body position versus bar height. And he is probably the best guy to talk to about this. He would have seen the trends since he started his company in the late 90s and went all the way through the 2000s watching this trend of lower and lower bars, of smaller and smaller frames. And this article is interesting because he gets right down to business from the very first word, and this is the first sentence that he goes with. The information below we also share with our pro riders to combat the misconception that lower handlebars are better. Then he runs through the basics, and the idea here is that riders' bodies have built-in angles at which they perform at their best. When a rider is at maximum effort, the body will put itself in a position that's most suited for that effort. In particular, this pertains to the hip angle, as the angle between the legs and the torso that determines mostly how the power is generated. His main point with this part one is that the handlebar height does not really change the back position, especially not during serious exertion. The back position more or less is fixed and a changed handlebar position means that you have a change in arm stretch, reach, angles and with the back more or less fixed, meaning the shoulders are more or less fixed, the arms will assume whatever position it takes to connect the shoulders to the hands and holding the handlebars, basically he says that it's the elbows that take up the slack. So when you're dropping the bars, you're overcompensating and and it's your elbows will be the area that holds most of the weight from your upper body. His second argument for not dropping the handlebars down too low is in part two of this article and he talks about handling and with the arms more vertical 
and the elbow more stretched, handling is less precise. The more your elbows are in an angle, the more you push and the more you pull on the bars, which is good. But stretching your elbows means you are flailing your arms more, which gives less precision. Rather than pushing on one side, you're pulling to the other in descents, etc. This doesn't really come into play as people will lower their back for the corners and pedaling action, but it's not at peak performance then anyway. So this issue plays out mostly when riding on the rivet in groups, especially in high effort, high stress situations like the classics on narrow roads. And this is the last point, but it's the most important point, I think, where... He does talk about riders intuitively knowing this. They know that their bodies will adjust under this certain load and what's going to happen to them, which is why in the past 30 years, as the trend progressed to move handlebars down, the amount of time spent in the drops has decreased and the most time is now spent on the hoods, which in turn explains why the riders of today sit just as low as those 30 years ago, despite having dropped their bars by four inches or 10 centimeters. So everybody's riding around in a similar position to what they were riding at 30 years ago. It's just taken this entire crazy process to get there. And then again, riders are getting into the drops, which is going lower even more, but it might not even be supplying the performance benefit that they think they're getting from it. Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week and how to become a better climber. This is something that I touched on very early in the show's history because I did an interview with Dylan Cooper way back in episode 13 and that episode covered Dylan's approach on riding and racing hills plus I threw in a few of my own ideas to help you crush the hills. This episode is looking at how to become a stronger, faster and more efficient climber with a more systematic approach. The up hill road is not an easy one to conquer and even if you're the fittest rider on the planet you have to earn it before and during the climb climbing is hard and it always will be hard but this episode lays down a system to help you crush those damn hills pretty much when i was writing this i was thinking that this advice is universal whether you are riding a hill in a race or you're training or any other time you smashing it out on hills this system definitely applies one thing i will say is though get to know the hills that you ride on it will help you ride faster and you will know how to best prepare for them if you don't ride it regularly then try and do some research beforehand even if at minimum you just want to learn some landmarks to help you know where you are on a climb So what's the system? Well, here's where it may get a little complicated the first time round. It's a five-step system for optimizing your climbing, but there is also a detailed checklist included as one of the steps. Do not fear, though. I'll list them out in the show notes. So check out semiprocycling.com forward slash climber for all of the nitty gritty. So step one, the warm up. Simple and straightforward, but oh so necessary. This means getting to the base of the climb ready physiologically and mentally. The warm up is going to prepare your body to cope with the hard effort you're just about to put in. But at the same time, you have to get yourself ready 
in the right state of mind, whether that's geeing up or calming down, especially because the next step is one of the most important ones. Step two is your focus checklist. And before you start your effort or in the early phases of a long climb, complete a focus checklist. This is not just to work on technique, but also to get you ready for the hurt. And I have to admit, this idea is stolen from SPC listener Mike Mooley Jr. He calls this entering his focus room and the idea is so good that I had to borrow it. I'm sorry, Mike, but I hope you appreciate what I'm going to do with it. Quoting directly from Mike, when I'm in my focus room, the tension, not pain, that I feel is trying to break my focus. So rather than trying to ignore the pain or push through it, I tell myself to stay focused on the effort. So how do you stay focused with something Mike calls the focus checklist? And it's a much more positive and refined hangout spot than the pain cave or the hurt box will ever be. There's a number of different items that you can put on your focus checklist, but before we get into the details, the focus checklist is something you can use at varying times when on the bike, and it's at its most effective during heavy work intervals. Also, when you're training on climbs, do an initial check after your warm-up, during the effort, on the ride, and after the efforts on the ride to see where you're at. When you're racing on climbs, there are a lot more variables to consider. So it's a little bit more of a check-in with the system when things are calm or they're in a steady state during the race. And this leaves you focused on the competition just when you need to be. What I've put together is a little long and it's a little detailed, and you will need to practice this to remember it, but it's definitely worth it. And over time, you will get there. So here it is, the focus checklist. It's six items. So the first one is your feet, and it's more to do with your pedaling form. You want to see if your pedaling form is correct. Is the pressure throughout the entire stroke and throughout the entire foot? Are you maximizing the downward stroke with the majority of your pressure? And are you lifting the heel and gliding across the top of the stroke? Obviously, this is something that I can't teach in one sitting. And learning how to pedal smoothly and with the correct form does take time. But having this on the checklist ensures that it is something that you're consciously thinking about when you're focusing on this area. The second one is knees. Are they straight up and down where there's no sideways movement? There's no weird in and outs. This may need training as well because it's not always natural for somebody to just move their knees straight up and down. So you need to concentrate on this during training and then try and make slight adjustments so you can eventually get there. Number three, saddle. Sitting back on the saddle to activate glutes. And sitting is definitely the most efficient way to climb, period. Sitting back in the saddle will recruit your glutes. And while we are on glutes, how are your glutes? Are your glutes working and strong? It's something that's not really spoken about very often, but glute strength should be one of your major focuses. And it's especially important to climb well. Why? Because glutes and quads are a large, strong muscle which propel the bike forward more than any other muscle combination or muscle on their own. Glute activation is an issue that you may have experienced or you know nothing about. There's really not much middle ground whenever I talk to cyclists about this or I just think about the issue. It's really common for riders not to use their glutes enough at all though. 
And if you can't activate your glutes at all, when you ride, you are using your quads and your hamstrings and you're overcompensating, which means that you've got loads more power to add to your pedal stroke if you can just get that chunky bit of muscle working. Because... There are a bunch of ways that you can lose your glutes and never actually know that you've lost use of them. So you would want to go to a physiotherapist to get a screening done to assess the issue. They're going to be the best ones to pick it up. But before you go, though, try out this do-it-yourself test. Lie on the floor with your foot against a Swiss ball and... You want to have it flat against the Swiss ball and then the Swiss ball is against a wall. And with your leg slightly bent and the other leg lying down on the floor alongside the Swiss ball, gently push the Swiss ball and feel if your glutes are contracting without your hamstring being used. To really understand what's being activated, you're going to have to use your hands to touch your hamstring and use the other hand to touch your glute to see if your glutes are flexing. And if they're not flexing, go see a physio. They really are the best people to assess because they're going to assess the level of glute activation and then teach you how to use them better. I've actually been working with an athlete that's had this issue over the past four months and he's made great progress with some focused work doing glute activation exercises to learn how to contract properly again and then dropping some heavy weights on them only once it was safe to do so, but then getting them working effectively and strong again. So that's my little detour into glute activation. So get on that if you haven't thought about it. At least do the do-it-yourself test to see if there's anything that you're leaving on the table. But let's get back to the focus checklist. Item number four, core and back and breathing. This is really from your stomach up, where before we were doing from the feet to the hips. Now we're kind of doing the core, which is engaging the abs. You want a neutral spine. I have spoken about position and neutral spine in the past. You want a neutral spine. A quick check of this is to sit up, pop yourself into neutral spine, and then go back down to the handlebars. While you're thinking about this, make sure that you're breathing correctly through your belly. You want to have deep, consistent breathing through your belly. So that's kind of the front half. If we start moving around from the bottom up again, we're thinking about stabilizing the hips and we're wanting a flat back. So the flat back is just a reflection of getting your spine into that neutral position and dropping down. But thinking about where your back is will help you reduce the rocking and the bouncing, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid by engaging this entire area. We don't want rocking. We don't want bouncing. And so we want to eliminate those by consciously focusing on that area. Number five is hands and elbows. And this is something that is not spoken about much either. You want a loose grip. You want a controlled but loose grip. And you're either going to be on the tops with your thumbs, so like you're playing the piano, or on the hoods, but you don't want to be stressing it. So release that tension from your hands and get a comfortable grip that maintains control of the bike still. And while we're talking about hands, let's move up to elbows. We want them tucked in towards your body, not bearing the weight like we spoke about in the performance probe. We want them to be relaxed and ready for action if they need to be recruited. If you're just going up a hill, there is no need to use them unless you are on a mountain bike and especially if it's a technical climb. Number six, shoulders, head and neck. So now we get to the top and the first thing you should do is relax and drop your shoulders. You want a droopy blubber face. I call this the Cadell face and you want that blubber face because you want your jaw closed but relaxed and not clenched because then that will have a flow-on effect because your whole body then will stay relaxed. 
regarding your head, eyes up. But I've said this before, you don't want to put your eyes too far up. So say you're on some switchbacks, you don't want to be creeping up and looking, oh shit, that's where I've got to go. You want to stay focused on just ahead of you and keeping your rhythm because if you start looking up, you're going to get distracted and it's going to change the way that you're actually riding the bike. So look up, but not too far ahead. So that is the focus checklist and it may seem like a lot to remember and it actually is. And maybe you need to list them out on your stem so you can go through this checklist. But just remember though, Suffering is different than focusing on the effort needed to climb well. You can suffer through it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're riding your bike correctly and you may be leaving watts out on the road. And that is what Mike is trying to do with his checklist, trying to complete tough sessions and moments as proficiently as possible because once you have this system down, come race day, it's all about muscle memory. And when the hammer is being dropped during the race, you can just focus on the race itself rather than how you feel. Amen, brother. Thank you very much for this idea, Mike. I really do appreciate it. So now we step back out again and go to step three. And don't go too hard, too early. Make the second half faster than the first. So pace yourself and know your numbers Also, choose your battle because if it's training, you want to ride to your rhythm, you want to find a comfortable breathing rhythm as well as cadence, and also think about breaking down the climb into smaller chunks. Remember when I said that it's important to learn some landmarks if you don't know the climb? This is where it becomes useful, really useful, and this is best done if you can't get into a rhythm because it allows you to reset and get into a rhythm on a better part of the climb. If you are training for a race, you need to train your body to climb at a steady pace and also to surge when you climb. By surging the speed during the climb, you'll teach yourself to go with attacks or even to attack yourself. So try not to climb only at one pace, but try and mix it up a little bit over time. Step number four, ride consistently, but change technique when you need a break. This is linked to step three, but it's really more about a few little techniques that can help you in certain situations, namely when you're getting jack of sitting down and you want to stand up, or if there's some steeper part of the climb that you want to get over. Don't just go in and out of the saddle without a plan. This is kind of my overall point for this step. In training, practice riding in and out of the seat and riding at different speeds to see what works best for you. Obviously, these two positions use different muscles and standing can help temporarily rest and stretch the muscles used more in a sitting position. When a climb gets super steep, you may want to stand to give yourself some momentum. And this depends on your gearing. If you've got a compact on, maybe you can get over it without worrying about it. But if you've got the real gears on, then when you stand, though, you will need to stand further back by lifting your chest up to remain centered on the bike. And this is also useful for grip. When you want to stay in control, you want to be smooth and keep your weight back. Another area that needs practice for steeper sections and attacks is learning how to accelerate with your bike up a climb. Knowing when to put down an extra gear and getting through that steep hairpin or attacking means learning how to use torque when you're out of the seat. By keeping your body still, you're able to improve your ability to accelerate through the pedals. It's similar to when you're sitting down and you're trying to drive everything from the hips down, but it changes a little bit because you want to maintain that strength through your entire body when you're standing up. And I'm not talking about Contador Vocler when I'm talking here. 
I think their version is weak, although Contadors is pretty effective at times. They rock their body to get the power out, which is more energy sapping than doing it the right way. The right way to use your torque on the bike is to keep your front wheel in a straight line and not move around up a climb. You can check how you're going and whether this is possible. If you just ride on a white line, you can see when you get out of the saddle what happens and if you actually do this. If you can't, then you just need to keep practicing. Push the bike from side to side. Feel the pressure, but don't give into it. Use your body to move the pressure down and into the rear wheel. Think about that. you're actually on the bike doing this then you'll be able to feel like pantani but just don't ride in the drops remember the drops are as low as the hoods used to be back then step five and the final step is ride review and refine work out what strategy works for you on what type of climb and just keep practicing that use the focus checklist when you're under pressure or hurting on a climb to put you back in the focus room if you stay focused on form the rest will definitely follow it's all about understanding where you are on a climb, your best strategy for climbing certain climbs, your best strategy for training for races, and your best strategy to maintain form when it's meant to be breaking down. So let's get to the tech hacks and products section. And this week, it is another power meter. It's a power meter inosol called RPM2. It actually is firstly a running product which measures gait, range of motion, pressure, I don't even know what those things are. But the final one on the list is power. So it actually measures power. So this last part is of interest to us. And quoting from their website, RPM2 has built in a low-cost power meter which consistently displays power, average peak power, and cadence throughout the ride. RPM2 looks at pressure when cycling in the same manner as it looks at for gait. The biking application also breaks the ride into five separate measurement points. Although gait cannot change since the feet are locked into the pedals, the force or pressure can have an impact on cycling performance. My first thought when I saw this was how quickly are you going to wear these puppies out? Because they are in a super high friction spot being under your foot, but they recommend only using them for test exercises once per week, which to me, is just a huge fail. It rules out the cycling environment because you want it in there all of the time. And there's no way I can see someone ponying up 699 USD to drop this power meter in your shoes for one ride a week and then trying to get some training or racing benefit from that. I find it really hard to think that this product is a contender in the power meter market just for that reason. And while I am slamming them, I want to mention their app. I'm not exaggerating when I say it is the ugliest user interface I have ever seen. The colors are a huge put off that wouldn't even get me using the app to know if it's any good at all. It's an absolute fail. Sorry, RPM2. I hope you have better luck in the running market. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Phil the Cookie Monster Gaiman, a Garmin Cannondale merger casualty. He will be back racing full-time on US soil next season, and obviously he hasn't made his millions, so he's talking shit at the start of this episode when somebody asked him what he's going to be doing for the off-season. But Phil, keep cranking it out, brother. The sport needs you, and fingers crossed, you get back into the World Tour next year. And P.S., I'm not sure if he's going to be doing Tour de Phil this year. 
I'm sure he's got much more relaxing things on his mind. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash climber to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box or the focus room, whichever one you're into. 